Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. As a congregation, we have been looking at the story of Joseph for most of the summer. And I want to ask you, before we read our chapter today and dive into the text, this was like family feud. You know, we polled one congregation. When you hear the name Joseph from the Bible, what do you think of? I'm going to do something crazy because Mr. Mercier is here. Tell your neighbor what you think of. Ready? Go. Hear the name Joseph. What are you thinking of? All right. How many of you? How many of you, when you heard the name Joseph, said... He was the one who successfully managed Egypt and navigated them during the famine part. (laughs) Too many Dolly Parton fans out there? You just went straight to the coat? Coat? Yep, yep, yep. yep. Did anybody say, he was the one who when the people of Egypt and the surrounding countries ran out of money to pay for the grain, he told them, sell your livestock to to him. And then when they had no livestock and no money, he said, well, sell me your land. And then he made them promise after he gave them back their land to give one-fifth of it to Pharaoh for the rest of their lives. Anybody have that one? Everybody went with the coat. How odd is it, though, that today, when we think of what we value in people, we value them for their great wealth, for their shrewd business practices, for their power. How odd that this man who procured so much wealth and power, is mostly remembered for his coat, remembered for his brokenness, his struggles, his cracks, his ability at the end to reconcile the ones who had harmed him. Hmm. I'm going to read through the story. It's all of chapter 45. I'm going to just read the whole chapter today. I, I know that we usually break it down verse by verse, and I'll do a little bit of that, but... I really wanted to just come back to this one section today because this whole story has been leading up to this part with Joseph and his brothers. And it's not like it's a surprise. We know they're going to be reconciled, you know. So I don't want to... When it's not a surprise, you still got to read the story. You still know what's coming. There's good parts in it. But there's this one piece that I really just felt wanting to talk to you about today. So if you got your Bibles, Genesis 45. It'll be on the screen behind me. It's in your bulletin as well. Let's read the story together. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. He cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. Remember, this is right after Judah's big speech that we looked at last week. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard all about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They were afraid because of what they had done. And this was the moment. He'd been messing with them this whole time. Now he's going to get them. But instead, Joseph says to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. From the one at the beginning who they bowed down to, to the one they had wronged, thought they had killed, that they had done away with, is now the one who forgives and the one who provides, sustains, and gives them new life. That's a story we know all too familiar with our Lord Jesus. Verse 12 says, you can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, Joseph says, that it's really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping. He kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also directed to tell them, do this. Take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings because the best of all of Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh had commanded, and he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they were leaving, he said to them, I don't know, maybe jokingly, don't quarrel on the way. But to get an idea of what this would have looked like with this large caravan coming, these donkeys and these, uh, uh, what did he call them? Uh, where did it go? Carts. It'd be like today if, um, I don't know, like a real fancy Air Force One and a whole plane full of Amazon supplies, like a fleet, just landed down in the middle of the Amazon to a tribe. They'd be like, this is the stuff of legend. What is this? But that's exactly what this was like for... Uh, the people of Canaan, when they saw this. And I had a Star Wars example, and I see you, but don't everybody got what I'm saying? There's one holy nod. Man, we are asleep today, folks. I, the holy nod is this. It's a little lip out, and it's a nice nod. Helps me to know to keep going. Anyways, so then they went up out of Egypt. They came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph's still alive. In fact, he's ruler of all of Egypt. Jacob is stunned. He doesn't believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And before you put that story away, I want to go back to verses 5 through 8. Because sandwiched there, Joseph says something that many people say is the theme for the entire narrative, the entire story of Joseph. And here's the verses again. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Then it jumps down and says this. No, no, no. The next slide there. Who is that? Yep, there it is. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. What is happening here 
is that Joseph is implying that God can take human evil and can bring an even greater good. God can take human evil and bring an even greater good. And this is when we say it at a macro level, we might look and say, yes, I agree. God can take human evil and bring about an even greater good. But when we look at it at a personal level, while we might not be able to say yes right away, we may be more tempted to say in that moment, why? Why would he do that? Now let me tell you what this will not be about, just so that we are clear. That saying, God can take human evil and bring an even greater good, is not saying that bad things happen to good people because God is all loving, but he's not all powerful. So we have to learn to forgive God for the pain that he causes us in our lives. That is not the God that we see in the Bible. This is not saying that God wants evil to happen or bad things to happen to us. That is not the God we see in the Bible. This is not saying that when bad things are happening, God is hiding. God doesn't even know what's going on. When the psalmists or other people in the Bible say, why do you hide God? They are saying, God, why can't I see you right now in the midst of this? Why can I only see the bad? Joseph is telling us that God can take human evil, things that humans meant for harm and for wrong, and can overcome them and can bring good. Joseph is telling us that when we fix our eyes on ourselves and what we've done or the things that have happened to us in this moment, the temporary things, our eyes miss the eternal. We miss that God is always with us. We miss that God is in control. We miss that God is at work even in the midst of this. And what we see in saying this is that Joseph chose to praise God, to give glory to God in spite of everything that had happened to him by the hands of his brothers. In spite of all the wrong he had suffered and dealt with, he chose to praise God. Can God take human evil and bring an even greater good? Yes. And I think it's okay to ask why. And I think there are three additional stories apart from the story of Joseph that can help us to try to, to flesh this out. This first one is the story of Tobit from the tribe of Naphtali. He was a man who was carted off to Assyria to Nineveh. All he wanted to do was go back to Jerusalem and worship at the temple. He prayed constantly because he had been taken into exile. And while he was in exile, he was constantly asking God to go back home where he could make God's name known. Because he believed that in Nineveh, in exile, he was ruined. He was stuck. He couldn't make God's name known. He couldn't glorify God in the proper way, the, the right way, the way that God should be glorified. He would pray, God, just, just fix this for me. Let me go back to Jerusalem, to the temple. How I, I can't do anything when I am in exile. If you read that story, bad things happen to this person who in this story is a righteous man who did all the right things and more than anything else in his life just wanted to worship God in Jerusalem, in the temple, like he is supposed to do. And then all this stuff happens, but at the end of the story, there's this really long prayer that he gives. 
And he says in the start of it, praise him, you Israelites, in front of the Gentiles. Exalt him before every living being. And you're like, okay, great. Yeah, I sing that every week. We say that all the time. I don't get it. But in the context, in the context, what he's pointing out, for Tobit, he's been stuck. He is still in exile. He does not ever get to go home. He never gets to go back to the temple. And in many ways, he is still broken. But he finally realizes that even there, in the place that he doesn't want to be, with things happening to him that he doesn't want to happen, God's greatness can be shown. He can praise God and still speak of the works of God in his life, even in loss, even when things don't go how we want them to, or even, let's just say, when things don't go the way they're supposed to go. God is not powerless, and God is not absent. Instead, God has highlighted his mercy, his power, so that no matter where we are, so that no matter why we are there or what brought us to that moment, we have an opportunity to give God praise. The second is about 400 years ago, a powerful shogun in Japan had his favorite tea bowl that he purchased. He loved it, used it all the time. But at one point, it got shattered. It was cracked. It was useless. So he sends it off to be fixed and asked, you know, make it new, make it work again. And they send it back. And what he got back was this gross, ugly, wasn't really fixed at all. And so he sends out this challenge to all the, the artists, all the, the people. And he says, who can fix my teapot? And someone had this idea of this lacquer resin mixed with gold, gold that had been ground down into dust. And the gold resin was used to fit the parts back together. They didn't send him back a new pot or try to make it look like it was never broken. Instead, it was something different, probably looked something like this. Oh, it's there. I didn't see it there. This art is called kintsugi. See, your eyes actually go to the crack. The cracks are highlighted in this. The cracks somehow become what makes the bowl unique and beautiful. I wonder how many times as humans do we want people to look at us and say, look how strong they are. Look how wonderful they are. Look how beautiful they are. Look how they, they have it all together. Look how whole they are. I've seen the pictures. They have a great life. If only I could be like that, then it would be good. Why won't God give me that? Why do I have to be like, like this, broken, hurting? But maybe, maybe Christ's followers don't say, look at my wholeness. But instead say, look at what God has done in my weakness. They don't take away their weakness or pretend their cracks never happened, but instead use it for his glory to be able to say that I really was lost but now am found. Because the truth is God can bring good out of people who aren't healed. And the truth is that God doesn't have to take away the crack to make you whole. doesn't have to take away the broken to make you beautiful. In fact, the presence of cracks and wounds 
highlights God's grace. And in Jesus, we are enough. Because you could get another bowl, and that'd be nice. But to allow the weakness to remain and be redeemed, to be made new again, that is something else that only God can do. And the beauty is in the cracks and the broken and how God overcomes. For the same is true for our life, that even though we have brokenness and cracks and are dinged up and have wounds, we are not ruined. And even more so, we are not replaced. We are loved, cracks and all, because we have been redeemed by Christ Jesus and made beautiful. And the beauty is in the broken and the blessed. Not healed and replaced, but redeemed. And maybe we sow in tears because of our sin and the things that have happened to us. But we sang that joy comes every morning. His help always comes. He leaves the 99 to find the one. So we lift up our eyes and our hands in prayer, in hope, in trust, because in Him we are never separated from the love of God, no matter what comes, no matter what cracks, doors, or walls. Which leads us to the third story. And for the third, well, the third you would have to tell, because it would be your own story. It would be for you to look at your life, to shuffle out the good and the bad, the cracks and the fun. Times like Joseph when it was good and the times when it was bad. And you would have to decide two things. Do the cracks define you? Or are they just a part of you that God is using to bring even greater things? And can you? And will you continue to praise God when more cracks come? Because the power of the story of Tobit and Potts and Joseph's and you and I, first and foremost, is power and mercy of God. That power and mercy that is shown to us in Jesus and lived each day in grace. Because it was our Lord Jesus who showed us how to surrender to God, how to pick up our cross, and how we said at the very beginning, by His wounds we are healed, by His death we are redeemed. And I want to leave you with this scripture from 2 Corinthians that Pastor Tim read to me this week. It's from chapter 4. These are the words of Paul, one who was broken, who fought till the very end, right? And he teaches us what we have in Jesus, who despite his own cracks, speaks to the overwhelming, never-ending faithfulness and love and victory of our God. And sometimes, sometimes it's good to just hear God's word read to us. This is chapter 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. Whether we've renounced secret and shameful ways, and we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We don't try to hide our cracks. And even if our gospel is veiled or not understood, it's veiled to those who are perishing. 
The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. How could a dead and broken God bring life? For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It's written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. And since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present with us, us with you, to himself. This is for your benefit, so that the grace is reaching more and more people, may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. And then he writes this for us. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen.